they began to focus on Cynthia and David as the sole suspects immediately. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. On November 22nd, the morning of David and Cynthia's arrest, two law enforcement agents had stayed behind at the Dwallaby home, Officer Cawee and Shocknessy. They told Anne to wake Davy because he was being taken into protective custody. Davy was upset when he woke up. He'd had an accident. Anne lifted the sleepy four-year-old onto his parents' bed and started to change his clothes. Davy was still crying and confused. Anne tried to persist that they couldn't take him, but the officers threatened to arrest her if she got in their way. Officer Cowie stood by as Anne stripped and dressed Davy before he agreed to go for a ride in the police car. Anne told him, You'll be home soon. In the car, Officer Cowie asked Davy if he remembered what happened the night Jacqueline went missing and if he knew what happened to her. Davy just knew he wanted Jacqueline home for Christmas and asked if he would be home for Thanksgiving. The officer answered that he didn't think so. They drove to the Department of Children and Family Services HQ in Chicago, over half an hour away from Midlothian and everyone the little boy knew. When Officer Cowie handed Davy over to Marilyn Daniels, a caseworker, he allegedly told him that Cynthia and David were drug users that had been arrested for their daughter's murder. Officer Cowie said that Anne drank a lot and he thought that they might be part of a satanic cult. Based on David's rose tattoo and a drawing of a crow Jacqueline had done, supposed devil worship symbols. Daniels asked Davy if he had any siblings. Davy told him that he had a sister that had gone to God and that two men had come into their house, wrapped Jacqueline in a blanket and taken her away. He said he didn't see the men. Daniels wrote that Davy's parents had been charged in connection with his sister's murder and that he was at risk of physical injury. Shortly after, Davy was taken to the paediatric ecology unit at Mount Sinai Hospital. The specialised unit for abused, neglected and emotionally troubled children was established in 1985. It was designed to treat both physical and behavioural problems that arise from problems in childhood. It was the first paediatric programme of its kind in the nation and was developed in part by Dr Howard B. Chairman. When it first opened, he said... A large part of caring for a child is not just treating physical ailments. We'll give them psychiatric tests, psychological evaluation, and evaluate the family with the child. If you just go into a home, that's a one-shot deal. The hospital was in a contract with the state of Illinois to evaluate and treat child abuse victims. Many were critical of the practices. When Davy arrived at Mount Sinai, he was examined for signs of physical abuse. They even performed a rectal and genital exam on the four-year-old, without his parents present or anyone he knew. Dr Sharon Ayert performed the exam. She then prepared a chart indicating that Davy had 17 marks on his body. Assistant District Attorney Dean Morask ordered that Davy be photographed from various angles by the Chicago Police Department. These photos showed no marks whatsoever. During an exam conducted by child development specialist Noel Kalinowski, Davy was found to be well-developed and responded normally to questions about Jacqueline and if his parents ever hit them. Officer Cowie offered to present supporting evidence to the psychologist. He told them that Davy's parents had failed polygraphs when asked about Jacqueline's death, how Cynthia had no reaction when she was arrested and that she had Jacqueline's underwear in her purse. Cindy had put the underwear in her purse to give to Linda Petrine, the psychic that met with them before Jacqueline was found. Reporters were told that Davy was hospitalised because he was emotionally distraught, but they weren't told why. That night, Davy cried himself to sleep in Mount Sinai. He begged one of the nurses to let him go home. Meanwhile, over in the county jail, Cynthia dreamed that Davy was calling out for help. 
The next day, a hearing was held at juvenile court where it was decided that the custody of Davy should be granted to the state. The decision was set to be reviewed on December 7th, where it could be decided if the little boy could be placed with family members. Allegedly, the physician who examined Davy found welts that he said were caused by a belt. According to the physician, some of the welts were old and some were new. According to police, this hinted towards a motive in the murder of Jacqueline. She too was being abused and threatened to tell somebody, the police concluded. The police also concluded that Davy had possibly been sexually abused while living at home. Davy wouldn't be home for Thanksgiving. Copies of Dr. Ahart's report, with the diagram showing where Davy allegedly had bruises, were sent to news reporters. Channel 7's Dick Johnson ran the story that Davy had allegedly been physically and sexually abused. Following the reports, the media seemed to focus solely on the allegation of abuse, but printed them not as allegations, and as fact. There was never any mention of the countering reports from those who said that Davy wasn't abused. Rob Warden spoke about this. You know, a fake report, I mean, from a child psychologist at Mercy Hospital, uh, just fabricated false, and we know it was false because the only public guardian observed the interview and contradicted what the child psychologist wrote. On Friday, November 25th, three days after Davy was taken from his home, Marilyn Daniels, the child services worker, met with David's sister Rose and her husband. Rose and John were special education teachers in a junior high school and had two young sons of their own. They wanted Davy to stay with them. He could have his own room and the comfort of family. Daniels told them that he would let them know when the decision was made. Instead, Davy was to be moved on Monday to Hefzibah, a temporary shelter for children. That same day, a Cook County Public Guardian's Office attorney, Jeanette Volpe, was assigned to represent Davy. Miss Volpe was present when he was being questioned for the second time at the hospital. Also present was Assistant State Attorney Morask. Dr. Kolonofsky interviewed Davy again. Davy was asked if his mother ever hit him with anything and if she hit Jacqueline with anything. His response would later be disputed by those present. The interview ended with Dr. Kalinowski concluding that Davy's statements were consistent with a history of physical abuse to himself and Jacqueline. Jeanette Volpe said, Davy didn't understand what was happening to him. The Mount Sinai worker questioned him over and over again about his parents and his sister. He was being pressed for information he clearly didn't have. The following morning, Davy met with Dr. Stanley Luke, a psychologist at Mount Sinai. When Davy cried and asked where his parents were, Dr. Luke told him that they were with the police in jail. Davy was inconsolable, but Dr. Luke's report stated that he seemed to accept this news fairly well. Davy's medical chart from the same day said that he was hysterical and needed the nurse to console him. On Sunday evening, members of the Dwallaby family were finally allowed to visit Mount Sinai. It had been five days since Davy saw any of his family members or a familiar face. He constantly cried and said that he wanted to go home. Anne, Rose, John and Cynthia's mother Mary travelled to the hospital that night to see him. Mary's name wasn't on the list and she was refused entry. Devastated, she said that the whole thing wasn't right. Anne, Rose and John were allowed to see Davy separately for 15 minutes each. The usually happy, playful child was a shadow of his former self. He clung to Rose, trying desperately to compose himself. When Anne went up, she felt enormous guilt. She had been the one with Davy when he was taken from his bed. She knew he probably blamed her. Anne addressed Davy the morning he was taken, and he was still wearing the same socks when she went into the hospital room. Davy promised to behave if he could come home and told Anne that his mummy and daddy were in jail. Anne tried in vain to comfort her grandson. She was interrupted by the social worker and told that she couldn't make promises or tell him that he could come home soon. When Anne had to leave, Davy sobbed. He believed that Anne could just take him home with her. He didn't understand why he was being left behind. Davy had become increasingly depressed while at Mount Sinai, but following his stay, he was transferred to Hefzibah an agency that had a 10-bed diagnostic facility for children who were temporarily removed from their parents' care. Mary Ann Brown was the director of the centre. She collected Davy from Mount Sinai and brought him to Hefzibah. 
There were other children there. They ate together and Davy asked them to say a prayer for Jacqueline. It was said that when he was moved from the hospital, Davy's mood significantly improved. On the 1st of December, the DeWallaby's attorneys for the child services case, Janet Traffalay and Catherine Ryan, were in juvenile court arguing that Davy should be placed in the custody of family members. Other members of the family had decided that the likeliest candidates to care for Davy would be David's twin sister Rose and her husband John. Both Rose and John were special education teachers, meaning that they would easily pass DCFS foster home requirements. While the couple were easily the most suitable to take on a child, there had been 10 different relatives that offered to foster Davy. Irving Miller, another of the attorneys representing Davy, said that if the court did not allow Rose and John to have custody, then he would be seeking custody for another family member. In the courtroom, Miller said, There is no indication that any relative put any bruises on David DeWallaby, if in fact there are any bruises on David DeWallaby. If there's no indication or a till of evidence that a family member abused the boy, then the boy should be placed with the family. Juvenile court judge Robert Smearshack denied the request that Davy be sent to live with family members. He ordered that Davy remain in the custody of DCFS and stay at a foster home. He did, however, decide that Davy could visit Cynthia and David in the Cook County Jail, but the visits would be supervised by Cook County Sheriff's Police and a social worker from DCFS. The judge scheduled another hearing for the 15th of December to potentially revise his decision on whether Davy could be sent to live with a family member. Patrick Murphy, Davy's county cook, public guardian, relayed the police and prosecutors incessantly questioned Davy for three to four days. He said, What they did to that kid, I think, was unconscionable. They questioned him like a defendant. They were trying to get him as a witness. He also added that after speaking to Davy and viewing his medical files, he was unsure as to how they came to this conclusion, because he could find nothing to indicate physical or sexual abuse. He also added that Davy had been incessantly begging to see his parents, and that he missed them very much. Murphy wasn't the only person to reach the conclusion that Davy hadn't been abused. There were a number of psychologists and physicians in Mount Sinai that found no such evidence of abuse. Helen Schaefer, one of the caseworkers, wrote a report which said that there was no evidence of any kind of abuse, physical, mental or sexual. Her report was supported by contemporary notes, while others who reached a different conclusion seemingly disposed of their notes. Furthermore, a number of x-rays had been taken of Davy, and they showed there was no evidence of fractures or bone destruction, something which would indicate abuse. Marianne Brown, the executive director for Hefzibah, had fought for Cynthia and David to be granted visitation rights. She said that denying the visits would be extremely severe because Davy had lost his sister, and losing his parents as well, would have been detrimental to his mental health. The judge had ordered contact visits between Davy and his parents, believing that is what had been recommended. Cynthia remembered the first time that Davy was brought to see her in jail. She was watching from the window when she saw him being led by Mary Ann. When he was brought in, she was allowed to hug him for the first time in what felt like forever. He sat on her knee while she told him that she loved him and that he should be praying before bed each night and to include Jacqueline in his prayers. He told her that he was eating yogurts, his favourite food, and asked his mother what kind of food she was eating. Mary Ann Brown said the following about the visit in Gone in the Night, a book about the case written by David Protes and Rob Warden. It was very heartfelt, he sat on his mom's lap and stroked her face. She said she loved him and he said he loved her. There were a lot of hugs and kisses. 
Cynthia reminded Davy to say his prayers and that he should pray for Jacqueline. Davy tried to reassure her that he was okay. He brought pictures of him at Hephzibah so that she could visualize where he was. Cynthia asked him what he had been eating and he said yogurt. She said that was good. She gave him a package of crackers that she had saved from one of her meals. We had brought some cookies but weren't allowed to give them to her. We spent an hour. The visit ended abruptly because the time seemed to go so quickly. He didn't cry. He was prepared and he knew that he was going to see his dad next. When we left, Cynthia waved until we were out of sight. Davy kept turning around and waving. Davy was also brought to visit David. Davy loved his father and was always so happy to see him. Other inmates would save cookies from their meals for David to give to his son. Marianne Brown said, The visit was very playful. You could tell that there were a lot of things that they did together. They shared the cookies and David and I laughed when Davy said, I'm a cute little boy, aren't I, Dad? David drew a picture of himself and wrote the words, I love you. Davy put it up on his wall of his bedroom and saved it the whole time. He was at Hephzibah. The visit was supposed to be an hour, but the guard gave us some extra time. When we finally had to leave, David helped him put on his coat and said he had grown a lot taller. When Davy whispered, I love you, his dad cried. It was a tearful goodbye, very emotional, but Davy handled it pretty well. The close relationship between the father-son duo was evident. As it transpired, the judge had not recommended contact visits, so the subsequent visits were from behind panes of glass. Marianne said, It was difficult because they obviously were used to touching each other, but David and Cynthia made the best of it. They weren't about to waste the visits. Cynthia and Davy pretended that they were in a spaceship, like it was something out of a movie they had seen together. She read him a book. She had to hold it up to the glass so that he could see the pictures when she turned the pages. Both parents focused a lot on him. They would ask what he ate and what he did. They were very concerned that he would see the media coverage and that it would add to his anxiety. Davy had a wonderful report with his mum and dad. This was one of the most conclusive pieces of evidence. To have his sister die and his parents disappear was pretty alarming to him, but he was on target for a four-year-old, just a regular kid. The Dwallabies spoke to Davy on the phone every single day. They made sure to tell him how much they loved him and that they would be together soon. Davy's voice was sad and distant. Based on the interaction between David and Cynthia and Davy, it was evident that Davy was not abused by his parents. Quite the contrary, in fact. Davy thrived when he was in the company of his mum and dad, and it was indisputable that they doted on him. David had given Davy an Oreo during the first visit, and Davy kept it with him in his pocket for so long that eventually it had to be thrown out. On November 28th, the same day that Davy was transferred to Hepzibah, the Illinois Appellate Court panel refused to grant bail to Cynthia and David. They also ordered that the trial court conduct a preliminary hearing forthwith to determine whether there was probable cause to continue holding Cynthia and David. The Appellate Court ordered that when the hearing was complete, the trial should reconsider Cynthia and David's request for bond. In documents that had been filed with the appellate court, prosecutors once again divulged very little information regarding the evidence they allegedly had against Cynthia and David. They reiterated that they had an eyewitness who placed David at the scene, and they additionally stated, without proof, that the rope found around Jacqueline's neck had come from inside the Dwallaby home. During the hearing, the prosecution had argued that the couple should be held without bail because the crime they had committed was indicative of exceptionally heinous and brutal behaviour, adding... Imagine the seven-year-old victim, knowing her own parents were going to strangle her, and in fact did strangle her to death. The hearing was scheduled for later on that week, but following the hearing, 
Ralph Metric went to violence court to try and seek an immediate hearing. Both Metric and Hyman had argued that forthwith meant immediately, but Judge Michael Boland disagreed with their assertion. Citing a fourth edition of Black's Law Dictionary, Judge Boland argued that forthwith meant as soon as possible. Due to the conflict, it was decided that the state would go before a grand jury, and if the grand jury handed in an indictment, then a preliminary hearing would not be necessary. This decision was preferable to the prosecution, because it meant that they did not need a public preliminary hearing, which would make the circumstantial evidence against the couple public. Grand jury hearings are sometimes used as an alternative to preliminary hearings, either of which are necessary after an arrest to establish whether or not there is enough probable cause to indicate that the accused has committed a crime. A prosecutor must present sufficient evidence to charge a defendant with the crime, or they will not be required to stand trial. If there is not sufficient evidence, a judge is obliged to dismiss the charges. A grand jury is made up of members of the public that review the evidence presented solely by the prosecution. They must review it according to a probable cause standard to determine if the evidence is sufficient enough to issue indictments for the accused to stand trial for the charges. Prosecutors spent over half an hour presenting the evidence they claimed to have to the grand jury. Whilst the proceedings had been unpublished at the time, we can see retrospectively what happened in the courtroom. Transcripts reveal that Patrick O'Brien for the prosecution called two witnesses to testify in front of the grand jury. Captain Daniel McDivitt, head of the task force responsible for the investigation into Jacqueline's disappearance and murder, and Assistant District Attorney Dean Morask. O'Brien and the two witnesses made it seem as though there was concrete evidence to prove there had never been an intruder in the Dwallaby home, and that not only had abusive parents killed Jacqueline, but there were five witnesses that placed either David or Cynthia's Chevy Malibu at the scene where Jacqueline's body was found. O'Brien asked very specific questions when examining McDivitt. McDivitt answered positively when asked if there had been undisturbed dust on the inside of the basement window, despite the fact that there had been never any record of dust until weeks after Jacqueline went missing. McDivitt also agreed that David had told him that all of the doors had been closed, locked and bolted on the night in question, when in fact David had only referenced locking the front door. Anne had got out the back door, and the sliding patio doors were never mentioned in police reports. O'Brien asked Captain McDivitt if Everett Mann had seen a Chevy Malibu at the Islander apartments on the night Jacqueline was taken, and McDivitt answered yes. He answered the same when asked if Mann had selected David from a photo array, indicating that he had made a positive ID, when in fact Mann had said that David's nose seemed the most similar to the silhouette he had seen in a dark parking lot from 75 yards away. Captain McDivitt also answered yes to whether the hairs found on the trunk liner of the Malibu were similar to Jacqueline's hair, whether there was human blood found on Jacqueline's pillow, whether witnesses had seen a Chevy Malibu at the Islander apartments on the evening of September 13th, and whether David had asked if Jacqueline had been found in a field when he was told she was dead. They failed to mention that there was a hairnet in the trunk that Cynthia used for work, and that there was no fibres transferred to indicate that Jacqueline or her duvet had been in the trunk. They also admitted that the blood on the pillow was all staining. The witnesses had said that they saw a Chevy Malibu in the afternoon, at the same time the Dwallaby's car was parked in front of their drive, alongside several police vehicles. They also left out the fact that David knew investigators were searching fields for Jacqueline, and that Linda Petrine had warned him that Jacqueline would be found strangled in a field. Without any of this information, the grand jury could only see what the prosecution wanted them to see. O'Brien then showed the grand jury 20 photographs of Jacqueline's decomposed body and a further 21 autopsy photos before telling them that Mann had identified David as the driver in a fairly well-lit parking lot on the night Jacqueline went missing. The audio tape of Everett Mann's statement would completely discredit this, but the grand jury weren't privy to that. Rob Orden spoke about Patrick O'Brien. After Robert Clifford, the original prosecutor, had determined that the identification was worthless, uh, he was basically kicked off the case. Uh, a new guy named uh, Patrick O'Brien took it over. O'Brien had to have known that that identification was worthless, and yet he proceeded with the case. And this all happened under Richard... M. Bailey, uh, as the state's attorney who had ambitions that were later realized to become mayor of Chicago, 
So there were political overtones here, reasons to proceed with this case, and the, the disgrace, and I would lay this squarely, the blame squarely, on Patrick O'Brien and Richard M. Daly uh, for allowing this, uh, this absolutely horrific, wrongful prosecution to go forward in the first place. It's just inexcusable. Nothing I can say beyond that. It's just was absolutely outrageous. Assistant State Attorney Dean Morask was the next to take the stand. He spoke about witnessing Davy's examination in Mount Sinai. O'Brien asked him if Davy had said that Jacqueline was the one that always got spanked so much. Morask said that he had said that. O'Brien asked if Davy had indicated that Jacqueline had been spanked with a broom, a belt, and a rope, and Morax said that that was correct. Jeanette Volpe was also present for that interview, and would later dispute this entirely. O'Brien asked Morax if he had seen Dr. Ahart's reports and chart indicating injuries on Davy's body, and Morax said he had. These charts were presented as evidence. The police photographs that Morax himself had ordered to be taken of Davy were not. Those photos showed that there were no injuries like Dr. Ahart had alleged. Given that the grand jury were presented with carefully selected evidence and curated testimony, it is unsurprising that they voted to indict Cynthia and David DeWallaby, charging them with first-degree murder and the concealment of a homicide. The indictments were read in open court on December 2, 1988, moments before Cynthia and David were arraigned before a judge. They both pleaded not guilty and the case was assigned to Judge Richard Neville. Judge Neville was a former prosecutor and the son of a Chicago police officer, but a lot more favourable than other judges that may have been assigned. According to the indictment, Cynthia and David had intentionally and knowingly strangled and killed Jacqueline and then concealed her death by transporting her body to where it would be found in Blue Island. Ralph Metchick, David's lawyer, said after the arraignment that the supporters of the Duwallabies thought it was an outrage that they took a little boy away and locked up the mother and father while the real killer is going unpunished. Days later, at a bond hearing on December 5th, prosecutors modified their position that the couple be held without bond and instead asked that they be held at $1 million bond each. Circuit Judge Richard Neville ordered an $800,000 bond for David and a $300,000 bond for Cynthia. The requirement for no bond is that the evidence of guilt must be great. The prosecutor said a purely circumstantial case. Cynthia and David's lawyers subsequently requested a reduction for the bonds. Mechik argued that the evidence against David was paper thin, while Hyman argued that the prosecution had not presented a scintilla of evidence against Cynthia. Standing outside of court was David's employer, who said he was there to testify to David's character if the judge called on him. David and Cynthia had known that they were the focus of investigation and knew they could be arrested at any point. Despite this, neither of them fled and according to their lawyers, this indicated that they were not a flight risk. During the hearing, Judge Richard Neville announced that the couple could be released on bond if they were able to post $110,000, which was 10% of their total bond. Cynthia appeared to be emotional Tears could be seen in her eyes as it was announced that the couple could be released if they were able to post a percentage of the bond. Ten days later, Cynthia's bond was reduced to $100,000 and David's was reduced to $500,000. The earlier ruling that they could be released if they were able to post 10% of their bond still stood. That evening, December 15, at around 8.10pm, a sullen-looking Cynthia was seen leaving the Cook County Jail accompanied by her lawyer, Lawrence Hyman. He said... Cynthia Duwallaby would like to tell you that she and her husband are innocent and they are grieving over the loss of their children. Family and friends of the couple were attempting to gather the $50,000 that was required for David's release. By the next morning, 10% of the bond had been collected from loved ones and David was released from Cook County Jail. The couple could be together after 24 days. While this should have been cause to celebrate, or at least to a certain extent, Davy was not able to come home making this breath of fresh air a sombre one. The state were still compiling evidence against the Duwallabies in preparation for the trial scheduled the following summer. The broken basement window had been given to state forensic microscopist Ralph L. Meyer. Meyer analysed how the broken pieces fit together and determined that the window had in fact been broken from the outside, not the inside like the police had assumed. 
Mayer had to reassemble the window in order to determine the direction of the force used to break it. When a window breaks, there are two types of breaks that can occur, concentric breaks and radial breaks. Radial breaks radiate from the point of impact and are linear in appearance, and concentric breaks are breaks that connect radial breaks together. They are circular in appearance. When determining the direction of force, an analyst looks for stress marks to indicate where the point of impact was. When Mayer pieced together the Wallaby shattered window, he found that the force to break it had to have come from the outside. The investigators did not consider that the large piece of glass found outside of the home may have fallen down from above or been pulled out from someone reaching for the handle. David Protas, who worked on this case as a journalist, said the following. They began to focus on Cynthia and David as the sole suspects immediately. Um, You look at the original police reports and they indicate from the initial interviews that they thought that uh, Cynthia was... Uh, crying uh, too much uh, and all the right times and that David was being glib and sarcastic. Um, The other reason that they uh, reached the conclusion almost immediately that the Dwalapis were guilty, besides Jacqueline vanishing from their home, uh, was that a broken basement window um, was found that the Dwalapis indicated to the police was the sign of an intruder But there were large pieces of glass lying outside the window, um, which the police interpreted to mean that the window had been broken from inside and and the force of the glass was drove it out onto the sidewalk. uh, And that the broken glass was merely a sign of a cover up by the Wallabies uh, when, in fact, they should have checked out whether or not the window could have been broken from the outside. Uh, It took a couple of months to reassemble the glass and in fact it was determined by a forensic scientist that the glass in the broken basement window was broken from outside the window and the police assumptions had been wrong from the beginning. Reasonable assumptions but wrong assumptions. Um, At at this point it had had become a runaway train and the the Wallabies uh, were doomed to be be arrested And, and, and I assumed at the time probably convicted too. Because when you have a little girl like Jacqueline found uh, with maggot infestation, the horror of that to a jury, it means that someone's got to pay for this. And the only two people who could have paid for it were sitting at the defense table, David and Cynthia Dewallaby. The theory that the Wallabies had been covering up an accident had stemmed from the idea that they had broken the window from the inside in order to imply that an intruder had taken Jacqueline in the night. While the evidence disproved that this was the case, the investigators maintained their belief that Cynthia and David were responsible for Jacqueline's murder. They just had to prove it. Even after they had told the press that it was true. Chicago lawyer Bob Byman spoke to us about his history with Prosecutor Pat O'Brien and the state's case. Well, it's not perjury to lie to the press. In fact, only the government, uh, at least in the United States, is permitted to lie to a suspect. You're allowed to lie to somebody to trick them into telling you uh, whether or not they committed a crime. And so the prosecutors, for example, leaked to the press that the window had been broken from the inside out. They never had any evidence that that was so. And in fact, every forensic test that was done of the window said it was broken from the outside in, but they leaked false information to the press. I have to tell you, I had some personal history with the main prosecutor, Pat O'Brien. Ten years before the Duwalaby case, I had another murder case with O'Brien. And ironically, his number two at that time was Larry Hyman, who represented Cynthia Duwalaby for a while. But So O'Brien and Hyman, this was a case in the projects of Chicago. It was a black neighborhood that was turning to a Puerto Rican neighborhood. And there was all kinds of gang activity going on. My guy was charged with shooting one of the Puerto Rican uh, gang leaders. And it turns out he actually did commit the shooting. Uh, What he told me was, now this was a guy who was 36 years old. He had an IQ of about 80. He had never had so much as a jaywalking violation. He had never been in trouble with the law. But... He's standing in front of his family's home. The Puerto Rican gang 
comes up to him and says, if your black asses aren't out of this neighborhood by tomorrow, we're going to burn this house down. He took that as an immediate threat, calmly walked up to his father's drawer where he knew there was a, a gun, came down and shot the guy. But the state still had to prove it. And I had no trouble defending somebody who thought he was defending his family. But the state had to prove it. And the only way they could uh, was through the witness of the other gang member, the eyewitness, who if he'd actually been there, if they could have produced him, it would have been pretty easy to prove the case. O'Brien kept obfuscating when I said, I want the, the name, address, contact information for your witness. And he kept saying, I don't have it. He keeps moving around. I said, well, do you have the witness? And finally, we're getting close to trial. And he continues to say he won't tell me what the contact information is. And now suddenly it's the day of the trial and he offers two years. And the judge calls the case. And I say, judge, a, a great offer has just been made to us. But I've asked for Mr. O'Brien uh, whether or not I can talk to his witness or at least try to talk to his witness. The witness could have refused to talk to me. That's uh, the witness's right. And the judge said, yeah, uh, let him have the witness. O'Brien wasn't willing to lie to the court. Uh, he wasn't willing to do it while there was a court reporter present. So he said, uh, Your Honor, I'm sorry, but we can't locate our witness. The judge rolled his eyes and I said, Your Honor, I move for dismissal of the charges. And he granted the motion. So O'Brien doesn't mind lying to people. He lied to my face multiple times about whether or not he knew where his witness was. He lied to the press when he told them about the window. He lied to the press when he told them that he had an eyewitness. Uh, and by the way, there, there's other history, which I'm sure Dave Protest will tell you about because he knows this better than I do. But O'Brien wasn't head of homicide at the time uh, that the Dwallaby case was, was simmering. At that time, Richie Daly wanted to run for mayor. He was then the state's attorney and wanted a conviction. He wanted to be tough on crime, uh, good on law and order. So he didn't want the Dwallaby case hanging out there unsolved. And he kept telling his chief prosecutor, get an indictment against the Dwallabies. And the prosecutor refused. He said, there isn't enough evidence. I'm not going to bamboozle a grand jury and get an indictment on a case we can't prove. So he was removed and O'Brien was put in because O'Brien was facile enough uh, to do whatever Dick Daly wanted him to. He got the indictment, but I'm sure I haven't seen the grand jury transcripts recently. I don't remember what was said, but I'm sure he puffed that as well. According to Marianne Brown, she had hoped that DV would be returned to relatives after completing a 90-day treatment program. Catherine Ryan, Cynthia's lawyer, in the custody matter, said that DV should be allowed to be with his family. She said... We're concerned for the child's welfare, given what he's already been through. The couple were able to visit Hefzibah a few times a week to spend time with Davy. The little boy tried to stay strong for his parents, but he missed them and his sister so much. And Wallaby, his grandmother, remembered that once, when Davy saw his father cry, he told him, Dad, don't cry, the other guys at work will see you. Marianne Brown was a great help to the Dwallabies. Cynthia and David never got the chance to finish buying Davy's Christmas presents from his wish list, and so the staff at Hefzibah picked up whatever was left to get. Marianne even went into work on Christmas Day, so that the Dwallabies could spend the holiday with their son. They tried to replicate a normal Christmas morning. Cynthia and Davy opened presents together. David helped his son assemble his new G.I. Joe plane, and they made a big breakfast together in the facility's kitchen. On the way home from the foster centre, they stopped at the graveyard to visit Jacqueline's final resting place. As they walked up to the grave, they saw a wreath with a red bow stuck into the solid, icy ground. There was a quarter taped to the top of the bow. Jacqueline's grave was unmarked, so it had to have been someone who knew where the grave was that left the wreath. But none of the family members had left it there. This wasn't the first time secret offerings had been placed by Jacqueline's grave. A single red rose had been left before. 
By January 20, 1989, Davy had been removed from foster care and was granted custody to David's twin sister, Rose Medema, and her husband, John. Davy was granted permission to have supervised visits with his mother and father, but only for 12 hours a week, and never alone. The following month, Hyman once again asked for the charges against Cynthia to be dismissed and claimed that the state had failed to present any evidence to the grand jury that connected her to the murder of Jacqueline. Hyman's motion asked Cook County Criminal Court Judge Richard Neville to review the grand jury transcript. Metchick followed suit, filing his own motion to have the charges against David to be dismissed. They believed that the grand jury had been misled into believing that there was more evidence against the Dwallabies, and said that Prosecutor Patrick O'Brien had committed serious due process violations. At this point, the defence were unaware that Everett Mann's testimony wasn't as solid as it had been portrayed to be, nor did they know that Dr. Ahart's report that indicated Davy had been abused was contested by the police photographs and Jeanette Volpe's account of Davy's examination. O'Brien revealed the prosecution's evidence publicly for the first time. The hearing was open to the media, who were still actively covering the case. O'Brien spoke about how the police had found hairs, similar to Jacqueline's, in the trunk of her parents' car, and bloodstains on her pillow. He also said that Davy had told hospital staff that Jacqueline was the one who always got spanked, with items including a rope. O'Brien stated that both Anne and one of the Dwallaby's neighbours had identified the rope found around Jacqueline's neck as having come from the Dwallaby home. The prosecution told the judge that not only was there no evidence of an intruder coming into the home, but also that there had been a witness who saw a man in a Chevrolet Malibu at the Islander apartment parking lot, eight hours before Jacqueline was reported missing, saying... He saw one white male in that car. He identified later in a photo array that white male as being David Dwallaby. Chevy Malibu is owned by the defendants. A photo of that car was shown to the witness and identified. Judge Richard Neville refused to dismiss the murder charges and stated that he found no evidence of prejudice against the couple. Cynthia and David were still being advised to stay silent by their lawyers just as the police had advised them in the beginning. So when the story emerged, detailing the evidence against them, they could not defend themselves. It's a reasonable assumption for the police to have um, that the Dwalabies should have been suspects in the case. I mean, Jacqueline vanished from right in their home. Um, They had to be checked out. Um, they, they had the, the evidence had to be looked at with a view toward uh, David and Cynthia possibly being guilty um, because it, it does not happen very often. Most abductions are by strangers uh, or by, um, by parents, um, you know, in a custodial dispute uh, over children. Um, for, for a little girl, seven years old, to, to vanish that way was just beyond people's imagination. The trouble with the police in this case is they took a reasonable assumption that the parents might be involved, and then they started looking for evidence that proved their assumption correct, rather than independently going out and looking for the truth. The prosecution were now focused on proving the Dwallabies killed their daughter, while the defence hired a private investigator to try and prove that they didn't. John Waters was a 50-year-old Chicago PD detective who worked as a private investigator on the side. He initially hesitated to work for the defence because, like many others, he believed that the Wallabies were guilty. Nevertheless, he agreed to take a look at the case for Metchik and Hyman and make up his own mind. The attorneys had issued a subpoena for police records for the time Jacqueline went missing, and found a report that immediately caught their attention. It was from the night before Jacqueline was taken. Just over half a mile from the Dwallabies on Keystone Avenue lived Ursabit Sicky. She and her family lived in a basement apartment. In the early hours of September 9th, 1988, 
a man broke into the home at around 2am. Ursula had been sleeping on the sofa in the living room when she was awoken by a noise. Initially, she believed that the noise may have simply been a cat. However, moments later she saw a dark man in her hall. When she screamed in fear, the man fled. The intruder had cut the screen on a bedroom window and climbed inside while everyone was asleep. The police report mentioned that there were some items taken, unlike in the Dwallaby home, but it didn't mention that when Ursabit ran to check on her children who were still sleeping, her daughter, who was nearly seven, was wrapped up in her bedclothes as if someone had bundled her up. Ursabit's daughter had brown hair and blue eyes, just like Jacqueline. Waters also looked inside the Dwallaby home and noted that the smudge mark that the police had seen underneath the basement window was clearly a footprint. He also noted that someone definitely could have climbed down into the basement by opening the window and sliding feet first on their stomach using their foot to push themselves onto the ground below without disturbing the metal rack beneath. The investigator had to look at every aspect of the prosecution's case, including the star witness, Everett Mann. Waters was able to find out that Mann had applied for the police force numerous times and was turned away after psychological exams showed that he had signs of cyclothymia, a condition characterised by mood swings and sometimes manic or depressive episodes. This could bring Mann's credibility into question. Waters felt that whoever killed Jacqueline had to have known her, and so he suspected Jacqueline's paternal uncle, Tim Guess. Tim hadn't been in the home before, to the Dwallaby's knowledge, but he had seen Jacqueline just prior to her death when she went to stay with her grandmother. The previous PI for the defence had found a link between Guess and the Islander apartments. He used to drive there often to collect a waitress that worked at the restaurant he frequented. It seemed like Guess had a rock-solid alibi. Workers at the diner said that he had been there all night. He always was. Tim had psychological problems, but most said he was harmless. He would clean tables and collect glasses at the diner, even though he wasn't officially employed by them. When Waters went to the Islander apartments after midnight on a moonless night, just like it had been on the night Jacqueline vanished, he noted that he could see absolutely nothing. It was becoming clearer that the key witness could not have seen anything definitive in the dark parking lot. The route between the Dwallaby home and the Blue Island apartments were winding woodland roads. It seemed like there would have been plenty of likely spots that someone could dump a body, not feet from a residential parking lot, unless the killer wanted the body to be found. To get more of an insight into the family dynamics between the Dwallabies and Jacqueline's biological father's side, Waters went to Florida to meet Jimmy Guess, who was serving time for what he called a date rape. Guess still loved Cynthia and told the PI that he didn't believe that Cynthia would ever harm Jacqueline. He didn't think David had either. Jimmy Guess had initially been hurt when Jacqueline was adopted by David, but resigned himself to the fact that it was for the best. The prosecution had gone to interview Jimmy, but after failing to receive any incriminating evidence against Cynthia, they decided not to call him as a witness. Waters had also considered Cynthia's brother Michael Borelli to be suspicious. Borelli had been close with the investigators from the beginning and was not happy when Cynthia and David were released on bail. When Waters learned more about Michael's past, his suspicion increased. Michael Borelli had four previous convictions and ten arrests. He drove a mid-sized, dark blue, late-model car and was familiar with the Blue Island area, having lived there before. The trial was due to start around the same time as Cynthia was due to give birth. While there hadn't been any major break in finding Jacqueline's killer, Waters felt like he was close. The legal fees had left the family destitute. They had to sell their home and move somewhere else. Just before they moved, David and his next-door neighbour Bob Talbert carried out an experiment which they recorded on tape. Bob was recorded dressed in dark clothes, opening the basement window and sliding in backwards while lying on his stomach. He uses his right foot as leverage to push himself off the wall as he drops quietly to the floor below. This proved that someone could have easily came through the window. Jacqueline would have turned eight years old on May 7, 1989. Instead of attending her birthday party, her grandmother Mary Malia visited her grave. The grave was finally marked with a headstone that denoted Jacqueline's name, date of birth and the date her body was found. Her exact date of death was not determined because of the level of decomposition when her remains were recovered. Mary didn't expect anyone else to be at the grave when she got there, but she wasn't alone. 
A man was kneeling on the ground with his arms stretched out. When he noticed Mary, he asked her if she knew Jacqueline, and when she replied that she was her grandmother, the man showed her a little picture frame he had with him. In the frame was a picture of Jacqueline cut from a newspaper article, juxtaposed with a religious picture. The stranger told Mary that he had become a Christian the day Jacqueline's body was found. The private investigator looked into the man at the grave, but found no links between him and Jacqueline's murder. Her death had a profound effect on many people. Waters interviewed many of the Dwallaby's neighbours, and their sentiments were all resoundingly supportive. The neighbours had previously been interviewed by the police, and from speaking with them, Waters deduced that the police reports were one-sided, and only focused on anything remotely negative about the Dwallabies. Bob and Mary Talbert, the next-door neighbours on the side where the window was broken, hadn't known David and Cynthia too well before Jacqueline's disappearance, but had since become friends with them. Bob said it was impossible that the parents next door were guilty. Even before they got to know them well, he knew they were very family-orientated. Mary said that she had seen laundry hanging on the line in the 9th, and when she went to work the next morning at 5.30am, she noticed Cynthia's car was still parked in the awkward position it had been the night before, when she struggled to squeeze into a spot after coming home from KFC. Holly Deck lived on the other side of the Dwallaby home. She said she did not believe that the Dwallabies were guilty of Jacqueline's murder. She had seen Cynthia's car parked awkwardly too, and stated that her dog had been barking incessantly in the direction of the family's home on the night Jacqueline went missing. She said, Cindy is a good mom." Other neighbours said that Jacqueline seemed like a normal kid. The Laskies who lived around the corner from the Dwallabies had known David for years. He had grown up in the home he was raising his own family in, and his older brother had been good friends with the Lasky's son. Francis Lasky said, Cindy and Dave are good parents who never laid a hand on the kids. His wife Betty said that Cynthia's Chevy Malibu was unreliable and broke down a lot. She didn't believe that it made any sense for someone to use that car to transport a body when David's van had been there. And she asked, why would you take a body in a car that barely make it around the block? The family that lived behind the Dwallabies were the Oyervides. Laurie Oyervides spoke of how they had made a cut in the fence so that their children could play together and that she never heard Jacqueline's parents be harshly to them and they would never spank them. Daniel Verbal's daughter had been good friends with Jacqueline. He truly believed the Dwallabies were innocent, saying, I know what David did for the kids. He took them fishing and camping and built a fort and swing set for them. His wife Renee had worked a shift the night Jacqueline disappeared, and she said that she too remembered Cynthia's car still being in the same place the next morning. While most of the neighbours expressed a strong belief that Dwallabies were innocent, Waters could tell that some had been heavily influenced by the prosecution and the police because their answers were riddled with information directly from the prosecution. Geoffrey Kalejic and his wife lived two doors down from the Dwallabies. It was the prosecution's stance that Geoffrey had positively identified the rope found around Jacqueline's neck as being the rope he had seen Davy playing with on occasions. However, when he spoke to John Waters, he said that he had only told him that it was similar. On the 1st of July, 1989, Cynthia was rushed to Olympia Field Osteopathic Hospital, where she gave birth to a 7 pound 4 ounce healthy baby girl. She looked just like her older sister, and Cynthia felt as though God had brought her back her little girl, in spirit at least. They named the baby Carly Marie. The middle name was in homage to Jacqueline, who had shared the same middle name. The couple were overjoyed at the safe arrival of their new baby girl, but it was interrupted when a nurse came into the room and tearfully told them that they had received a call from Child Protective Services to inform them that they were coming to take custody of the newborn. Cynthia and David were shocked. It had been agreed that once they informed the CPS of Carly's birth, that Mary... Cynthia's mother would be granted custody of the little girl. David rang to call Ralph Metchick to try and rectify the mistake, while Cynthia stood outside the nursery, anxiously awaiting someone coming to take her daughter away, again. Over an hour and a half later, Metchick called David to let him know that CPS wouldn't be taken Curly. The fear was overwhelming. David wrote about it in a letter shortly after, saying, My wife and I are delighted about our new daughter, she doesn't know it yet, but she's given us new hope and faith. Carly is asleep. The nurse comes in the room, a look of horror in her eyes. What's wrong, I ask. Please sit down. Suddenly my thoughts are flooded with fear. 
She could have told us there was a bomb in the room and we would not have been as frightened as we were to hear those words. I sit next to my wife and I hold her hand, and she's trembling. The nurse is nervous and trembling herself. We just received a call from a man from DCFS. He's told us he's on his way to take your daughter back with him. David stated in the letter, Beware of strangers. They take little children from their parents, and sometimes never let them go home. Mary was granted temporary custody of Carly. Cynthia was living with her mother, and David was living with his sister. They felt no closer to finding Jacqueline's killer, and were preparing to face a trial that had been postponed due to their daughter's birth. Almost a year to the day that Jacqueline was strangled to death and her small body was dumped among the tall weeds behind a parking lot in Blue Island, an eerily similar event took place in the same vicinity. A press conference was held on September 6, 1989. Blue Island Police Chief Paul Greaves announced that there had been an arrest of a man who was believed to have assaulted a woman on a train platform earlier that year and more recently abducted a little girl from her bedroom and sexually assaulted her. We spoke with Joe Cosman, who worked on this case as well. Perry Hernandez was almost a year to the date. It was like a year and a week away. Perry Hernandez was early September 1989. September 2nd. September 2nd. Uh, it was weird. I was, again, my partner was Doug Hoagland, and he calls me up on a Saturday morning about 7 o'clock. He says, hey, we got a burglary. I said, well, why are you calling me for that? You can handle that on your own. He says, you won't believe what, what they're calling a burglary. I said, what? He says, go to St. Francis. I said, for a burglary? Well, we got a, def- a suspect in custody there? He says, no. Patrol says, I asked them what was taken. They said, a little girl. So that's when I went to St. Francis, and that's when we, that was the start of it. And uh, when Doug and I were interviewing her, she says, I think it was the guy that lives down the alley. And Doug says, wait a minute, I hear arrested Perry Hernandez. He lives down the alley years ago. And that's when we kind of put it together. His prints were located at the crime scene. And they checked him right away. And it, because, you know, hey, this is a big case. And sure enough, it was for Perry Hernandez. On the night of September 2nd, 1989, Perry Hernandez snuck into a Blue Island home and abducted a six-year-old girl as she slept in her second-floor bedroom, just three feet from her twin brother. Perry had broken a window in the home that the little girl shared with her parents and four siblings, all of whom were asleep. He silently climbed in without waking anybody. He covered the little girl's mouth with his hand and whispered at her to remain silent before lifting her out of the bed and carrying her to a railroad bridge along the Calumet River, where he then raped her and let her run back home. This happened just one short mile from where Jacqueline's body had been discovered, along the same river, almost one year to the day. The little girl was able to identify her kidnapper as her neighbour, Perry Hernandez, and he was subsequently arrested and sentenced to 45 years in prison. After Perry was arrested for this abduction, he was linked to the attack of a woman on the 21st of April 1989. A woman had been walking through Blue Island's Borough train station when she was attacked from behind by a man. The attacker dragged her by her hair, bit her face, thigh and breasts and brutally beat her. A number of Metro employees had been watching the CCTV footage as the attack unfolded and scared the attacker away. The case had gone unsolved until Perry was arrested for the September abduction of the six-year-old girl. As it would soon be discovered, Perry's girlfriend, Julie Oster, lived just five blocks from Jacqueline and her family, and she confided in police that he frequently stayed overnight in her apartment. The similarities in this case and the Dwallaby case were striking, and the Dwallaby attorneys would quickly pick up on this and pen him as the potential murder suspect in the abduction and murder of Jacqueline. John Waters wanted to learn more about the abduction to see if there was any possible link. He went to the sickie home where just the night before Jacqueline's abduction, there had been a break-in. Elizabeth's young daughter had been found safe in her bed, but her blankets were bundled up around her as if someone had wrapped her up. Elizabeth had scared the intruder off. 
When John Waters showed her a picture of Perry Hernandez, she said that he looked just like the man she saw in her home a year earlier. Waters asked Ursula if anything had been taken from her home that night, and she said that her daughter's earrings had been taken, along with other items. Jacqueline had been wearing earrings when she was taken. They were never recovered. The Dwallabies were hopeful that there would be justice for Jacqueline. Cynthia said, I thought we had finally found Jacqueline's murderer. The Dwallabies' attorneys were busy preparing for pre-trial hearings that were scheduled for that November. They wanted to present the Hernandez case at the trial to show the possible link between the cases. They also had to try and discredit the prosecution's case against the Dwallabies. In Cynthia's case, there was no single damning piece of evidence against her, but Everett Mann had apparently seen David at the crime scene where Jacqueline's body was later discovered. To try and disprove the prosecution's claims, the defence carried out another taped experiment, just as they had done by getting Bob Tolbert to climb through the Dewallaby's basement window, proving it was possible. This time, David drove to the Islander apartments at night in similar conditions as there had been a year before. A camera was placed wherever it had been standing when he claimed to have seen a man matching David's description pull out in a mid-sized blue Chevy Malibu. The tape proved that Everett couldn't have possibly seen anything discernible from that distance in the lighting conditions present on that night. Instead of granting David any sense of relief, he was overcome with sadness because, as he said, despite what the cops believe, this is the first time I've been here. It's horrible to think this is where Jacqueline ended up. A pretrial hearing is one of the most important parts of any criminal case. It is the time when the defence and prosecution argue over what evidence will be admissible in the trial. If something is deemed inadmissible in court, the jury will not be able to consider it part of their deliberations, and it could potentially swing a case from one verdict to another. Before the hearing was scheduled for November 20th, 1990, the prosecution learned that there had been a recording of Everett's initial statement about what he saw in the Islander apartment car park. This tape would stop and discredit any further evolution of Everett's account. He had not positively identified David Wallaby or his car. He said that he saw a nose and a mid-sized late-model car. The prosecution's eyewitness was no longer the smoking gun. The unidentified print that had been found on the broken window was re-examined and found to be Davy's fingerprint. This was a blow to the defence who could have argued that it belonged to an intruder. A November 20th hearing went ahead, with the defence arguing to admit the abduction committed by Hernandez as well as his attempted break-in at another home that night and the break-in in the Siki home just before Jacqueline's murder. The defence stated that the similarities in the cases should be admissible as they showed modus operandi and were logically relevant to disproving the prosecution's case that Cynthia and David Dwallaby murdered their child. Pat O'Brien for the prosecution said that there were numerous distinctions between the crimes and nothing linking Hernandez to Jacqueline's abduction and murder. The prosecutor outlined the distinctions young girl who'd been abducted and assaulted in Blue Island was able to return home. Hernandez had left a lot of evidence behind that he was there, including fingerprints and a pack of cigarettes. Judge Neville ruled that the evidence relating to the Blue Island abduction would be admissible in court, but would not allow the evidence relating to the Siki break-in or the attempted break-in Hernandez had admitted to because he could not see a clear link. As well as dismissing this evidence, he also ruled that the tape from the Islander apartments, proving that nothing could be seen from wherever it was standing, would also be inadmissible, meaning that jurors would have no idea about the string of similar cases, proving that a stranger could easily sneak into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night and they would have to decide for themselves whether or not to believe that Everett had seen more than the silhouette 
of a nose. Equally devastating was the fact that the videotape showing that an intruder could climb through the Dwallaby's basement window was lost. David and Cynthia decided to be tried together. The prosecution were no longer seeking the death penalty, but this did little to ease the couple's pain. David said, It doesn't matter. If you're innocent, dying isn't worse than spending the rest of your life in jail. David and Cynthia the Wallaby were railroaded by a killer, were railroaded and victimized by police, and then railroaded and victimized by the media and prosecutors later on. And they ruined their, they ruined their lives. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you'd left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe, and have an amazing week.